Who is Deng Xiaoping? How did China introduce capitalism into the economy? What happened in 1989 at Tiananmen Square? What were the results of the one-child policy? Who is Xi Jinping? And how has his leadership affected China? What things do we need to look for in China today? We'll answer these questions and many more in this episode, part three of the last 100-ish years in China. Welcome to Wiser World, a podcast for busy people who need a refresher on all things world. Here we explore different regions of the globe, giving you the facts and context you need to think historically about current events. I truly believe that the more we learn about the world, the more we embrace our shared humanity. I'm your host, Ali Roper. Thanks for being here. As a longtime foreign correspondent, I've worked in lots of places, but nowhere as important to the world as China. I'm Jane Perlez, former Beijing bureau chief for The New York Times. Join me on my new podcast, Face Off, U.S. versus China, where I'll take you behind the scenes in the tumultuous U.S.-China relationship. Find Face Off wherever you get your podcasts. Hey, welcome back. This should go without saying, but if you haven't listened to parts one and two yet, I would go back and do that because I use words and vocab in this episode that will not make any sense without that foundational knowledge. And just like before, some of the material in these episodes might not be suitable for kids or teenagers. So you know your kids best, just screen it beforehand, make sure that you're okay with it. I also want you to go to my website, wiserworldpodcast.com. Sign up for my email newsletter. I'm excited because I will be sending out very soon some additional information in those emails and you won't want to miss it and I won't spam you. All right. So last episode, we learned about Mao's Great Famine, also known as the Great Leap Forward, which was actually a Great Leap Backward, and the Cultural Revolution. And we learned that the worst of the Cultural Revolution ended and things started to thaw out a bit toward the beginning of the 1970s. And in 1972, President Nixon visited China. This is historic because he was the first U.S. president to ever visit mainland China, and it served to kind of break up U.S. and Chinese hostility and kind of helped the two nations have a more cooperative relationship. Many talks were had during that time. It was generally seen as a successful trip that opened up, however slowly, a relationship between those two major nations. By 1974, Chairman Mao is getting very old, and he promotes another man as chairman. Mao dies in 1976, and within two years of his death, a man named Deng Xiaoping kind of muscles his way into the position. Deng Xiaoping had been around for a very long time, and he had had periods of time where he was Mao's right-hand man and was very, very powerful in the CCP. He also had times when he kind of fell out of favor. He actually had been purged three times. During all of that that we talked about in episode two, he'd been purged three times and had come back from the wilderness each time. By 1978, Deng Xiaoping was clearly in charge of China. He was in power from 1978 until 1997, so a good long chunk of time. He was a highly influential man in China, a very important name to know. Interestingly, he had foreign experience. He had studied in France and had received his degrees in the Soviet Union, and therefore he had a different perspective from Mao, who had never left China until he was an adult. Also, Deng Xiaoping had been on the long march. So what did Deng Xiaoping do? He essentially launched China into a new period called the Reform Era. He moved away from 
the obsession with class struggle and instead focused on the modernization and development of China. China was in a state where, you know, due to the the Cultural Revolution, China wasn't moving forward. It was the largest communist nation in the world and had been through a series of very painful campaigns since its beginning in 1949. Technology and industry had essentially come to a standstill during the um, Cultural Revolution because education had come to a standstill. It had dropped off. So Deng had a lot of work on his plate, and the China that we know today is a lot of the result of many of the experiments that Deng Xiaoping made while he was the supreme leader. One of the first things he had to do was restore the public confidence in the Communist Party. He reaffirmed the importance of Maoism. He said that Mao was not infallible and was 70% good and 30% bad. And then he began bringing back officials who had been disgraced and purged during the Cultural Revolution. And this helped Deng consolidate power because he gained trusted allies who were equipped to do their jobs. And he also started discouraging people who had informed, who were informing and spying on their coworkers. He started cutting back on that. They, he didn't want anyone settling scores to try to get ahead in the party. And he also reduced the size of the government in general. Again, very interesting. Next, Deng launched a campaign to introduce a more socialist market economy. What this means is that the Communist Party would still do economic planning, but some supply and demand would be allowed. So in some regions, small private businesses were allowed to operate, and the state wouldn't always intervene to help keep them afloat if they started doing poorly or if they were starting to fail. The idea was to help workers be more efficient and competent, so they would introduce bonuses and even would allow some employees to be fired, which hadn't been done in a very long time since the government had always kept people based on fulfilling quotas by the state. Deng Xiaoping's critics called this market capitalism. It sure does sound like market capitalism, but Deng justified it by saying that China first had to try some capitalist ideas before it could reach the ideal of true communism. Hmm. This program became known as the four modernizations. So these four areas that he modernized were agriculture, industry, science and technology, so that's all in one, and then national defense. For example, in agriculture, the government began to loosen controls and would give farmers a little more authority. Farmers were allowed to experiment and figure out what would work and what wouldn't. And they were allowed to sell any extra surplus or extra if they had made more than the government had required. Another example in science and technology is that because of the Cultural Revolution, an entire generation of Chinese students weren't educated. So Deng Xiaoping introduced a crash training program in areas like computers and space technology, physics, genetics, energy. He even encouraged students to travel overseas to gain this education. Far different from the time of Mao. China's manufacturing capacity now, as it's known, you know, as the world's factory, largely due to this move by Deng Xiaoping. Slowly, the government begins decentralizing things a little bit. They start experimenting more. Deng began to push to reopen China's doors to the world. He wanted to improve China's economy through international trade. So he made some bold economic reforms that were in- intended to kind of temper communist ideology with limited forms of private entrepreneurship. The idea was that the state would still control most of the economy, but it would in certain areas allow more room for free enterprise. He opened the system called special economic zones. 
In these zones, he reduced state regulation and tax rates by a lot, which essentially made for a much freer market, competition, innovation. These zones became attractive for other countries to do business in China. Now, this experiment of CZEs, CEZs or special economic zones, it had mixed outcomes. Some of these CEZs had exploded growth, went from smaller cities to huge metropolises, skyscrapers within 20 years. Other CEZs didn't grow quite as much. The government began encouraging Chinese who lived overseas to begin investing in China. Many Chinese living in Hong Kong, which at this time was a British colony, China got it back in 1997. So it was a British colony and the Chinese in Hong Kong and also the Chinese in Taiwan, some of them began to invest the U.S. and Japan followed, but overall, these special economic zones began to spread throughout China. In 1979, Deng traveled to the U.S. and met with President Jimmy Carter, and this kind of signaled to the world that China was open for business. We'll talk about this more in a Taiwan episode, but also during this time, the U.S. and Taiwan went through some big political changes. And as the U.S. became a little more friendly with China, it still backed Democratic Taiwan, but it, the relationship with Taiwan became a little more shaky during this time. And again, we'll talk about that. In 1990, Shanghai and 10 other cities were called open cities. They would allow direct overseas investment. So you can see how quickly Deng Xiaoping turned things around. I mean, it really was within 10, 15 years and how much more modern China became during this time, it started to emerge as a more modern state. Deng Xiaoping also reestablished a more positive relationship with the Soviet Union in the 1980s and also improved China's relationship with Japan. The results of these four modernizations were that the economy began to boom. It is now the second strongest economy in the world behind the United States in 2022. It's possible that China could overtake the United States economy by the 2030s. The economic zones made it so that the growth was uneven, though. The coastal regions and cities with more freedom grew during this time. They grew much faster than other regions. And the interior regions of China still lag behind these regions and can be very poor. I saw this when I went to China, for example. One day we were in the city eating huge meals in skyscrapers. And the next day we were in the fields visiting with workers who lived in caves. It was a very stark contrast that it just was absolutely fascinating and also heartbreaking. Another result of these four modernizations were that there were growing pains. For example, because farmers could start taking more ownership of what they grew, they had more autonomy and they could sell the surplus. They started growing fast cash crops because it would make more money in their minds, but that led to shortages and other staples like wheat. So there were growing pains during this time. And also the population greatly shifted to cities in China. Rapid growth of cities led to more crime and other management issues. The Overall, the daily life of Chinese people tended to improve during this time. In the 1980s, very few Chinese households had household appliances, but by the 1990s, roughly 80% of urban households owned a washing machine. So you can see generally some improvement, but also some growing pains. Another thing that happened during this time started in 1979 was the one child policy, which I imagine you've heard about. This was a birth control program that was 
altered to two children in 2015. So it's now a two-child policy that's still in place today. Some interesting things about this one-child policy. Uh, again, the idea was birth control. And the concern was that the population was growing at an unsustainable rate and would soon lead to crisis. They felt that they had to limit the size of families. If they could do that, they could hold off this crisis. Now, there's a lot to discuss here on this issue that I'm not going to go into right, right now. But one of the major things to know is that this one child rule was not completely universal. Not all families were strictly kept to one child, but one to two was definitely the max. The second thing to know is that the party created a population police of sorts that would monitor and control the fertility of women under their watch. It has been reported that in some areas, government officials would actually monitor a woman's menstrual cycle and dictate when a couple could start a family. I find it very interesting that they monitored women and not men. As a result, abortion became very popular means to end an unwanted pregnancy. In the end, the policy had its effect, perhaps too much, with women having more educational opportunities and child rearing costing much more. China's birth rate fell too much. Many couples who are now in their mid-30s are struggling to care for their children and also their aging parents since they have no siblings to help them. And in China, it is still expected that children care for their parents in old age. So now that they're, the couples are encouraged to have two children, many of them are not doing it because the pressure is too great with all of the demands. Another issue is that this one-child policy led to a surge in the killing of female babies. In the early 1980s, there was a surge in what they call sex-selective abortions, since couples were determined that if they were to only have one child, that it should be a son. And some areas have massively skewed ratios, with boys far outnumbering the girls as a result. From what I could gather, this didn't seem to be the party's goal. They actually often used propaganda to show that it was just fine to have a girl and to be happy to have a girl. But many people still had a preference for sons, especially in an era where agriculture was growing. And it was a strong economic incentive to them to bring labor power into the family, while a woman in China usually leaves her family to labor where she marries. Again, a lot to discuss here on this policy, but I'm going to leave it at that. Also under Deng's leadership, China negotiated the future return of Hong Kong from the British and Macau from the Portuguese. Macau is another region in China. And in 1997, China got back Hong Kong. And in 1999, it got back Macau. So I'm going to quote here, to facilitate this, the People's Republic of China formulated the principle of one country, two systems, whereby there would be only one China, but specific or special regions could have a high degree of autonomy, maintaining their political and economic systems while the rest of China remained under communist rule. The constitution was thus amended to allow for the establishment of special administrative regions, or SARs, which would have the highest degree of autonomy from the central government. So what this basically means is that Hong Kong and other some other special regions of China are quite different from the rest of mainland China. They are not, they don't have the quite the same rules as the rest of China does. And we'll talk about that more when we talk about Hong Kong in a second. All right, so I hope you're seeing now that Deng Xiaoping essentially introduced capitalism to parts of China, and thus China changed enormously. While the Communist Party still rules, 
its economy is more of a social market economy. It's not a complete command economy. Parts are controlled by the states and parts are not. And in the 1980s, China was changing and growing so fast with this loosening of authoritarianism that the Chinese people began to want more. Some began to profit immensely from this. I mean, became billionaires. And almost always were these people connected to the CCP in some way. Also, living standards for most Chinese rose quite a bit after decades of crippling economy. Many, began, many people began to see the corruption in it as members of the CCP began to have a lot of wealth very quickly. And they're like, wait a minute, what's going on here? In the 1980s, the desire to have democracy grew. They're like, wait, all this happening, why don't we have the right to say what we want to say? Students began to protest. Um, some professors went on speaking circuits to encourage human rights, democracy, the separation of powers. And the Communist Party was divided on how to respond to this. Sometimes they would label these protests as dangerous and they would throw people in prison or would open fire on them. Other times they wouldn't do very much. Overall, Deng was not very tolerant of excessive criticism of the party, but these protesters would write that Deng Xiaoping had produced the four modernizations and they wanted a fifth modernization, which would be democratic reform. Want to learn how you can make smarter decisions with your money? Well, I've got the podcast for you. I'm Sean Piles and I host NerdWallet's Smart Money Podcast. On our show, we help listeners like you make the most of your finances. I sit down with NerdWallet's team of nerds, personal finance experts in credit cards, banking, investing, and more, we answer your real-world money questions and break down the latest personal finance news. The Nerds will give you the clarity you need by cutting through the clutter and misinformation in today's world of personal finance. We don't promote get-rich-quick schemes or hype unrealistic side hustles. Instead, we offer practical knowledge that you can apply in your everyday life. You'll learn about strategies to help you build your wealth, invest wisely, shop for financial products, and plan for major life events. And you'll walk away with the confidence you need to ensure that your money is always working as hard as you are. So turn to the nerds to answer your real-world money questions and get insights that can help you make the smartest financial decisions for your life. Listen to NerdWallet's Smart Money Podcast wherever you get your podcasts. History never says goodbye. It just says, see you later. Edward Galliano was right when he said that. Events keep happening over and over again in some form. And that's the reason I produce the podcast, My History Can Beat Up Your Politics. What is it? We take stories of history and apply them to the events of today to help you perhaps understand them better. We are also part of Airwave Media Network. I've been doing the program since 2006. That's a long time. And the show has a long name. My history can beat up your politics. Find me wherever you get podcasts. Starting in 1986, students began protesting for more freedom in several Chinese cities. They wanted, at first, they wanted things like better quality of cafeteria food at the university or not having to do compulsory exercises, or they wanted their campus leaders to be elected rather than chosen by the CCP. Across the country over the next two years, criticism for the party began to grow as a lot more students began to join in. And in 1989, one official of the Communist Party that had been a little more sympathetic to the idea of democracy, he died. 
And at his memorial service, tens of thousands of students assembled in Tiananmen Square, which, by the way, Tiananmen Square is a massive concrete square center in Beijing. It's right in front of the Forbidden City, which if you look it up, it's absolutely incredible. If you've ever stood in Tiananmen Square, you know what a massive place this is. So tens of thousands of students are assembled in this square and they attempt to give a petition to the major party leader at the time, but they were rejected. And more and more students arrive and the crowds are huge. It remained nonviolent. This is in April of 1989. And over the next six weeks, the crowds continued to grow. There was a hunger strike. And within the higher members of the CCP, there was infighting on how to handle these protests. What do you do? And in the end, the hardliners won out. They wanted this protest for democracy crushed. And on the night of June 3rd, 1989, army units and tanks kind of crept around the square from multiple directions and surrounded the protesters. And reporters from the West who were there reported on them opening fire on the protesters with no warning. Uh, it's also been found that they were firing on people along the way to the square. They opened fire and some of the images of this incident, this massacre at Tiananmen Square, are absolutely horrifying. Students were forced to leave, many at gunpoint. It is unknown how many people were killed. The Chinese government claims 200 people died, but Western reporters claim that thousands to tens of thousands were murdered. After the events of that day, the CCP began hunting down anyone who was involved in the protests in any way, and a wave of mass arrests took place, arrest, you know, arresting tens of thousands of protesters, throwing them in prison. It was a major crackdown, and by the morning of June 4th, the square is empty. It was this eerie and terrifying time in China. To this day, the events of Tiananmen Square in 1989, it's often called the Tiananmen Square Massacre incident, whatever you want to call it, where pro-democracy protests were brutally shut down by the CCP. These events are highly sensitive and not mentioned in China. If you look it up on the internet in China, nothing comes up. Chinese people are not allowed to talk about it. They're silenced if they do. And just imagine that time, those people who lost family members or their family members just disappeared or sent to prison, they couldn't even openly mourn their loss. And the CCP to this day has been very determined to shut down any conversation about that day. One of the results of the Tiananmen Square massacre was that it was kind of the first time the outside world saw the brutality that the CCP was capable of because these Western reporters were there. And if you go Google the image called Tank Man, You'll see one of the most famous pictures of this time of a single man carrying groceries standing in front of a tank, and it's really moving. And I will also post in my show notes and also in my emails um, a really great video documentary about that day. Now, you'll remember from the Russia and Ukraine episodes that right around this time, 1989, the Soviet Union fell, and many of the Soviet bloc countries became post-communist countries. China was in a tough spot here. From their perspective, the protest waves were coming in and the CCP, the Chinese Communist Party, was determined to survive. And they have survived. It's 2022 and they're still around. So how have they done it? First, they were quick to point out how much struggle occurred in the post-communist countries that were independent from the Soviet Union. The Chinese state media to this day loves to point out the bad news in countries that once had dictators that turned in another direction. For example... They made a big deal of how chaotic and dangerous Iraq was after the U.S. caught Saddam Hussein. Another thing that they've done is that they've 
they've been a little less micromanaging generally in terms of books and articles and traveling that people can do, Chinese people can do. This has allowed them to stay around longer. They've had to work to raise the standard of living and the amount of consumer goods that are available to its people because they're traveling and seeing what's available. The idea is that if the people are comfortable, they are less likely to be dissatisfied with things like freedom of speech. And lastly, the CCP has also generally allowed smaller protests, depending on the type of protests. It does not allow them to grow into larger events like what happened at Tiananmen Square anymore. They'll try to stop it before then by doing internet crackdowns or arresting lawyers or activists as things unfold. But it is still not uncommon for people to just disappear in China. And we'll talk about that more later. But the CCP has managed to stick around. So we're at the end of 1980s. Let's go to the 1990s. The 90s in China were years of growth economically. Even with these protests for democracy, Deng Xiaoping kept the economic reforms in place. But after the Tiananmen Square incident, Deng chose to retreat from public view. And a bit of a thaw took place. By the time of his death in 1997, he had secured his legacy and the country was in control of his hand-picked successors. And there were a few presidents in the meantime and generally had peaceful transfer of power until 2012. During the 90s, some big things to be aware of is China generally had a feeling of optimism during this time. There was hope that China was going to change. China produced huge industrial projects and that a lot of that was through foreign investment. All of that boomed. At the same time, corruption also increased. The culture became more consumeristic. Crime rose. Unemployment also grew. And environmental pollution in large cities became very worrisome in the 90s, still is today. I know that when I went to China, I never saw a blue sky. The pollution, the pollution was crazy. In 1992, China and Russia signed a declaration restoring friendly relationships. And in 1993, the construction of the world's largest hydroelectric dam began. It was called the Three Gorges Project. And to make this project work, 1,500 cities and villages were flooded. It displaced as many as 1.9 million people and also destroyed 1,200 archaeological and historical sites. So this is a big deal. Interesting thing to look up if you're an engineer just interested in this kind of thing, the Three Gorges Project. In 1997, like I said earlier, the British returned Hong Kong to mainland China after 156 years of it being a British colony. So you'll remember from part one, Hong Kong was given to the British at the end of the first opium war. And when it was handed back over to China, China agreed to preserve the island of Hong Kong's capitalist economy as part of the agreement. The idea, again, was one country, two systems, and this became a special administrative region. And that would hold until 2047 or 50 years after the agreement. The agreement also said that residents of Hong Kong would continue to have rights to speech, press, assembly, and religious belief, just to name a few, until 2047. Again, we'll talk more about Hong Kong in a minute. Now let's move on to the 2000s. China became really known for cheap manufacturing during this time. Many foreign factories moved to China. China also signed some agreements in the 2000s with Asian and Eurasian countries to have trade zones and also to fight ethnic and religious militancy. Some of this stuff still comes up in the news. Also during the 2000s, there were a series of serious corruption and human rights violations in factories. 
For example, in 2007, hundreds of men and boys were found working as slaves in factories. And so China placed new labor laws into action. Corruption was also attacked over Chinese executives taking bribes and concerns that the food and drugs that were made in China weren't safe. Also in 2008, China hosted the Olympic Games for the first time. They also did it again for the Winter Games in 2022. And there are a lot of really good articles and podcasts that you can look up about the Chinese Olympic Games. So I'm not going to give airtime to that. But you can see how China became much more open to international things than it was back in the days of Mao. So this is a huge switch for the Chinese people. And you can see that older Chinese people today lived through all of this history and saw this massive change in their country. Let's talk about the 2010s now. China doubled its economy during these 10 years. It had an even more remarkable transformation. It also saw some serious tensions with the US and Japan during the 2010s. In March 2013, a man named Xi Jinping became China's leader, and the Xi is spelled X-I. He is the current leader today, which means he has been in a high level of power for nine years. And when he came into power, no one quite knew how Xi Jinping would be as a leader, but I'm going to read what one historian writes about him. Quote, he has moved forcefully against rivals within the elite has developed something closer to a personality cult than has been seen since the time of Mao, and has moved to reign in civil society and activism more forcefully than any leader has since 1989. End of quote. For example, by the early 2010s, Beijing starts getting impatient with Hong Kongers, or I should say the CCP starts getting impatient with Hong Kongers and how independently they're acting. In Hong Kong, people were getting away with massive vigils every June 4th in memorial of the Tiananmen Square incident. But only miles away in China, it wasn't even talked about, right? So just a huge difference. And in 2012, the CCP made a curriculum in the Hong Kong schools the same as it was on the mainland. And Hong Kongers protested this, saying that it was brainwashing and contrary to the values of freedom and independent thinking that Hong Kong had been allowed. And the CCP backed down, but some things kind of simmered for a while. And then in September 2014, the CCP attempted to revise the criteria for an election in Hong Kong to make it so that the only people who could run for chief executive would be pre-screened and pro-China candidates. Okay, so young people, millennials especially, in Hong Kong during this time, 2014, they did a sit-in in front of government headquarters, and they were not happy about their options for elected officials being screened and had to be pro-China. Police attempted to drive them back by spraying them with tear gas, but protesters protected their eyes by holding open, opened umbrellas in front of their faces. It was called the Umbrella Revolution, and it lasted for more than two months. If you want to go look it up, 2014 Umbrella Revolution, whoa, this is all under Xi Jinping. Gratefully, this incident did not turn into Tiananmen Square, but many leaders were arrested, and it was a really big deal, all under Xi Jinping. Many of these students did get off because Hong Kong has its own judicial system until 2047, 
But since that time, since 2014, China and Hong Kong have really butted heads. They continue to do so. Hong Kongers are very worried generally about the future of their city. If you're interested in Hong Kong, there are lots of great articles explaining some of the issues going in Hong Kong and how many Hong Kongers feel that China is very much overstepping and not following the rules that it agreed to until 2047. Not to mention they're very concerned about what's going to happen after 2047. Also in 2013, so a year before this umbrella revolution, pay attention to this because this is really important. China launched a huge belt and road initiative. It's essentially a global network of highways, railways, ports, energy infrastructure that is financed by the Chinese. More than 140 countries, most of them quite poor in the developing world, have signed up to have China build roads in their nations. Most of these are in Africa, South America, the poor nations of Eurasia, such as Pakistan, Afghanistan. And in Eurasia, they're calling this network that they're building of roads and freeways, they're calling it the New Silk Road. And you'll remember that the Silk Road was built during the dynastic eras in China and led the way for international trade between China and Europe back in the day. So why is this Belt and Road Initiative such a huge deal? Because China is doing business in countries that the United States and many European countries have struggled to do business in. They are doing work in the developing world in a different way than has been done before. Chinese companies and Chinese funding is flooding into Africa, for example. And Africa is likely to double in population by 2050. As one Forbes report says, quote, right now, you could say that any big project in African cities that is higher than three floors or roads that are longer than three kilometers are most likely being built and engineered by the Chinese, end of quote. So by supporting their infrastructure needs of these countries, China not only makes massive profit, but also gets deals on natural resources. And there's a lot more that I could go into on this. But what I want to mainly focus on is that China is strategic. It is making capitalistic stakes in countries that most Western nations have not. And this will play a very interesting role in the future of our world. And it's something just to keep an eye on, especially as you're looking at headlines. Maybe this will help make some sense of some of the major headlines right now. What's something you learned in history class that you feel wasn't the whole truth? Better yet, what's something you didn't learn at all that was omitted completely? That's what I like to call redacted history. I believe that all history, no matter how good or bad, needs to be told. There are wars, massacres, battles, and entire historical events that are just not in our school's history books. Have you ever heard of Mary Bowser? I didn't think so. My name is Andre White, the host of the Redacted History Podcast, the place where history's forgotten events, heroes, and villains get their story told, one episode at a time. So come huddle around the campfire with me and get ready to hear the stories that you were robbed of. And get comfortable. We're going to be here a while. The Redacted History Podcast. Real history never dies. Stream the Redacted History Podcast on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever else you get your podcasts. When Johann Rahl received the letter on Christmas Day, 1776, he put it away to read later. Maybe he thought it was a season's greeting and wanted to save it for the fireside. But what it actually was, was a warning, delivered to the Hessian colonel, letting him know that General George Washington was crossing the Delaware and would soon attack his forces. The next day, when Rawl lost the Battle of Trenton and died from two Colonial Boxing Day musket balls, the letter was found, unopened in his vest pocket. 
As someone with 15,000 unread emails in his inbox, I feel like there's a lesson there. Oh well, this is The Constant, a history of getting things wrong. I'm Mark Chrysler. Every episode, we look at the bad ideas, mistakes, and accidents that misshaped our world. Find us at ConstantPodcast.com or wherever you get your podcasts. Since 2013, Xi Jinping has continued to consolidate power. Um, he's had a lot of anti-corruption campaigns that have purged dozens of high-ranking officials and many hundreds of low-ranking ones. He has repressed a lot of activism. In 2017, Xi was appointed to his second five-year term as president, but he actually has no clear successor. This year, 2022, his term will end. But there was a decision at the 2017 October Congress of China, it's like the CCP's big meeting, that actually inserted Xi's name and references to his ideas into the party constitution. So it seems as though he will remain in power or be very influential for many years to come. He is seen by many as an adaptive authoritarian, but he is definitely not moving towards democratic reforms. All right, some modern things to know about China today today. Religion. Let's talk religion. The PRC, the, the People's Republic of China, is an atheist state, but not all religion has been banned. It officially recognizes five faiths, Buddhism, Taoism, Islam, Protestant Christianity, and Catholicism. This doesn't mean that members of those faiths are allowed to practice as they like, and each religion is not treated equally. Uh, house churches where, you know, the small groups meets, they're often targets of crackdowns, and sometimes they aren't even bothered. It really depends. Protestant Christianity has grown in China in the last few decades, but Catholicism has not. So again, uh, religion is a complex issue in China. It's very tricky. Another thing is that during the 1990s and now into the 2000s, especially since uh, Xi Jinping has been the main leader, China has been censoring its internet. It is often called the Great Firewall of China. And Chinese people, according to one book that I read, they use the internet largely for entertainment. But those who do share stories and opinions are highly censored. It's like a game of whack-a-mole for the CCP. It's not an easy to... I don't think it would be easy to reign in a country of 1.4 billion people, but some of these Chinese people that push against it call themselves wall climbers, the great firewall of China. Ultimately, the internet in China is not like the internet in most free nations. It will sometimes slow to a crawl, and other times it will be very fast, like when a big event like the Olympics is coming. The CCP has a lot of power over the internet and uses it. Another thing is that in the last two generations of Chinese, uh, they have largely been raised on a steady diet of propaganda that mostly talks about fears of the opium wars and Japanese invasions not happening again. They have been generally taught to be more wary of Western bias, and there have been a lot of disappearances with activists. The CCP, again, is very powerful. Sometimes will allow activists to work in China, but they're very closely watched by officials. Arrests are not uncommon. I'm going to link in my show notes a very fascinating podcast interview with a man whose ex-wife was disappeared and his take on China at this current point in time. I thought it gave an excellent look at the situation, also showed his personal opinions about people just being disappeared, not knowing where they went, not knowing what happened to them. Let's talk about the economy in China. It is important to note that China is not exactly capitalist. 
some 70% of the top 500 companies in the People's Republic of China are state-owned. They're owned by the state of China. And so much of its overall wealth is in the form of government assets. But with so many foreign investors in China, China is a very interesting spot for business. Many countries, especially the U.S., we have a lot of debt to China. But China's economy also relies on that money. So going to war in a violent kind of way, a hot war, doesn't economically seem to make sense for China. However, the CCP has been unpredictable. It's worth keeping an eye on those relationships between some of the major superpowers. It's really hard to say. Another thing is that since 2014, the CCP has started policies against a minority ethnic and religious group in Northwest China. They're called the Uyghurs, U-Y-G-H-U-R-S. These people speak their own language and have lived in a region that was semi-autonomous in China, theoretically was supposed to have some self-governance and grew cotton as an export. And it has been estimated that one million of these Muslim Uyghur people have been sent to internment camps or re-education camps without any legal process. Thousands of their mosques have been destroyed. The children have been separated from their parents, sent to re-education schools. More than 300 of those schools have been found, according to the Western sources that I've, that I've researched. There's also evidence that these people are being used for forced labor, that the women are being forcibly sterilized to wipe out their population. And many countries, including the U.S., have accused China of genocide, trying to completely wipe out this group. Some people have escaped the camps and have spoken of physical, mental, sexual torture. China obviously denies this and claims that these camps are there to combat terrorism in the region. That's another big issue in China. Another one is Taiwan. I will be doing an episode on Taiwan next since I feel like since the Russia-Ukraine war, I feel like I have been hearing much more about military flybys over Taiwan and Taiwan and Chinese relationships deserve their own episode. But needless to say, it is a tense relationship between the two. It's been going on for a very long time. And China has said it wants a peaceful unification with Taiwan, which Taiwan does not want. So again, we'll talk about this in another episode, but it's very important. I'm not trying to gloss over it. China currently has the largest, the world's largest navy and the third largest aviation force. It is also developing a space program and that worries some Western nations in terms of counterspace weapons. China is also expected to grow its nuclear stockpile over the next decade. China is also pursuing to build military bases around the world. It has been building islands in the South China Sea since at least 2014. If you want to look, Google up, Google the islands, man-made islands in the South China Sea. Very interesting. These islands are being militarized by by adding new land that China claims is theirs, these military spaces can hold missile systems, radars, runways, fuel storage facilities. And some experts are saying that these islands give China the potential to project military power over many countries in the region, like all the way down to northern Australia. COVID-19 has also been a very big deal in China. I will not go into details on this because information is still coming out on COVID-19 in China, its origins, censorship, all of that. But it is significant history in China and worth mentioning here. Lastly, the Chinese monetary unit or the yuan is on the rise and is said to have the potential to dominate the US dollar in the future. So keeping an eye on the yuan, what's going on with it, which countries are using it, I also think it's worth keeping an eye on. 
All right, that is a wrap on China. This was so, so much information. I hope that it gives you a much stronger foundation on the country. I still feel like we've barely scratched the surface, but I'm going to leave it at this. I think it's enough. Some of my takeaways for episode three are, I think that it's important to see how the culture of collectivism over the individual is paramount in many parts of China. Obviously not all parts. China is a very diverse place in many respects, but this idea of collectivism is very different from many Western nations where the focus has been on the individual. Just something to consider and think about, discuss with people that you know. I also find the ultimate power of politics in the Chinese Communist Party not only fascinating, but also personally I find this a little unnerving. The CCP has a lot of power in politics and business, and many foreign companies have had to sidle up to the CCP to make a profit in China. Fear of, of being disappeared by them is very real. Again, something to consider. China is overall very unique. No country controlled by a communist party has ever had the economic growth of China. And while the United States and China have very different governmental systems, it is interesting how some of the things that are happening in China today in terms of its industrialization and modernization are very similar to the U.S. back when it was industrializing rapidly too. So some of the parallels there are very interesting to study. And I'm going to leave it at that. I think I can just let this loose. I really appreciate you listening. If you have learned anything from these episodes, please share. I so appreciate your kindness and helping me to spread the word. Thank you. Thank you. Let's go make the world a little wiser. 